The following episode contains discussions of sexual assault, addiction, and the Israel-Hamas war. All opinions stated are the speaker's own. What's up, everyone? This is the Dot Daddy podcast. Today is December 7th, 2023, and I am here with Dr. Dean Zeldich, a physician resident at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. What's up, Dean? How's it going? Good to be here. Thank you for coming on. Seriously. Some people may not have thought I was going to get a real doctor in here. I am, in fact, a real doctor. He is a real doctor, but he's he's young. You look young, right? So how old are you, Dean? I'm 27. 27. And you are a second year resident? That's right. So I am a neurology resident at Thomas Jefferson. I am halfway through my second year. First year of any neurology residency is internal medicine. So that's like your, you know, general admitted patients to the hospital, um, your cardiology, your uh, hematology, your gastro stuff, all the internal organs, essentially. And then after that, you do three more years of neurology. And you're doing three more years because you're going into neurology, correct? Right. So after at the end of these three, three, well, I have two and a half left. You know, these years I will be a like board certified neurologist. Nice, that's exciting. Congrats, that's a lot of hard work. A lot of hard work. It's uh, yeah, give me the congrats in two and a half years. Okay, okay. Um, can you explain what neurology is for people who don't know? Yeah, so, um, I mean, the most common question I get asked when I say neurology is, do I do brain surgery? Um, the answer is no. I, uh, there's a big difference between neurosurgery and neurology. Neurology is more the management of neurological diseases, most common being strokes, um, multiple sclerosis, epilepsy, um, and then, you know, some of your neurodegenerative stuff like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, all kinds of dementias and, and, and the likes. Um, you know, I think, I think the new beast in town is um, headache neurology. A lot of people are suffering from headaches. It's actually one of the most common causes of disability in the United States. Um, and that's kind of another up and coming field of neurology. Really headaches are one of the, the biggest setbacks for people like debilitating headaches. Absolutely. I'm actually working on a headache unit right now. It's, it's one of the few headache units in America. Um, Thomas Jefferson is, is probably the biggest headache center in America maybe the biggest in the world, there's one really big one in Denmark. But um, essentially, you see people who have, you know, what they classify as like, eight, nine, 10 out of 10 pain in their head, all day, every day, they're unable to hold the job, they are completely, you know, disabled, a lot of them are on Social Security, or, um, you know, just completely dependent on their partners or their families. And you know, we can get into this a little bit later, but there's definitely a kind of like a learned helplessness element to this. So a lot of what we do is, you know, hook these people up with psychology support and sometimes psychiatry and making sure that we're managing depression and, and anxiety and trying to get these people back to some kind of functioning status even if we're unable to completely remove their pain wow 
you you said a lot there so i just want to ask a, a side question when you're seeing these people and they're saying i can't work i can't do anything because i have a headache we're not saying they have a you're not saying like they have a tumor in their head no so this is usually a migraine disorder there's some other headache disorders um less way less common most common being migraine and sometimes it's like people have this after a concussion but oftentimes it's just a migraine disorder and there's nothing structurally wrong with their brains and do you i mean through your research have have they learned what causes it or how it can be prevented or are there any uh indicators on hey this might happen to you in the next five years because you keep huffing this gas or something <laughs> um so concussions we know definitely predispose you anything that leads to structural damage so whether it's you know an old stroke whether it's a tumor whether it is um you know old bleed um that can definitely predispose you to headaches but migraines in and of themselves there for many years there was this understanding that it was due to the vasodilation and constriction so basically the widening or the stricturing of blood vessels and that was believed to be the primary driver of the pain and Honestly, over the past less than 10 years, must be like seven, seven through seven, five years, there has been this um, influx of information on actually the mechanism of migraines. And it is more of an electrical um, signal. They call it like the spreading cortical depolarization theory, which essentially means that there is some abnormal um, signal that originates somewhere in the brain and it spreads to the meninges, which is the kind of like envelope of the brain. And what you end up getting is a little more of like a meningitis. Meningitis is an infection of the meninges um, but, or an inflammation of the meninges. And in this case, you kind of get this really abnormal electrical um, activation around that meninges layer. And that leads to a lot of pain. And that in return leads to this like vasodilation of the blood vessels which can be painful so there is a blood vessel component here but that is not the, the biggest driver of this pain and that is why you know i think a lot of people who get occasional headaches occasional migraines you probably know that if you take say something like excedrin or advil in the first 20 minutes of the headache you actually have a much better chance of being headache free if you take it hours later you know you could you you might be like, you might be screwed a little bit and kind of have it for a few more hours. I've actually never heard that. What's the logic behind that? So it's basically you are catching that pain signal before it spreads all over. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and there's actually, there's a, there's a whole class of medication, which is one of the more prescribed ones called like the triptans or people maybe know about sumatriptan. Um, and that class of medication only works if you take it within the first 20, 25 minutes. Very interesting. I mean, that's good advice because I guess I, going forward, I will do that. I I usually do wait till the last minute because I'm like, ah, I can fight it a little right. bit longer. I can fight it a little bit longer, but I guess it's too late. I'm the same way. I I am extremely averse to taking Advil in particular. Um, I have some like, um, you know, swallowing issues. Whatever. We're not gonna have to get into this online, uh, but. Um, yeah, I also don't like to take it and often end up just suffering for hours for essentially no reason. So did you learn this, you know, what, during your time here at the uh, at the hospital? So this is recent kind of discovery for you? A lot of it is. 
a lot of it is recent discovery for me um a lot of it is i'm actually very interested in headache medicine uh, okay. i think that it's extremely under treated and the burden that people live with is is horrible and um you know i, I think that there's so much more to learn and discover but my mother actually has what's known as hemiplegic migraines and um you know since i was a kid i would see her hemiplegic meaning that she would lose us um use of half of her body so like either the left or the right side would just be completely you know non-functioning and if it's the left then that's also the part of the brain that's in charge of language so occasionally she would just be can move can speak can barely think like a stroke victim she had been called like that she's been brought to the hospital as like a stroke alert in the past wow um it's a very rare type of migraines and um you know i was seeing my mom struggle with this and still kind of find a way to be my mom was very successful and so um i think that it, it it was kind of motivation to me to to think that people with really bad migraines can have a great quality of life and and my, mom, my mom's a professor at uh, boston university so you know so she she really is leading um world cutting you know uh research in her field and and um so you know that that i think is um that should be inspiration to other people who are dealing with similar conditions yeah so you're saying your motivation for becoming a neurologist versus an orthopedic or dermatology is one of the reasons you love your mom your mom's suffering from headaches you want to try and get to the root cause yeah and she's a, she's actually you know she's a neuroscientist herself too so i think there's a little bit of keeping in the family I actually, it's funny that you say that. Because, Smart family. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I think she's much smarter than me. But uh, my whole life, I, I thought that I would be an orthopedist. And I thought that, you know, I played sports my whole life. I thought I would want to be with, work with athletes. I'd want to just drill bones and replace knees and stuff like that. And um, then I went through my med school rotations and realized that I didn't really like to be in the operating room. I didn't like to you know, be like, you have to be scrubbed in and have these like gowns on you and you can barely, like you have to stand hunched over and it can be very meticulous. And I just always felt like, I don't know if it's a like claustrophobia or just, I just felt like I was getting angsty in there and I just did not like that. I also didn't like the fact that, you know, you're starting a case and knee replacement could take an hour and a half. It could take seven if you rupture like a important blood vessel and it's complicated and you know all of a sudden you're stuck to the whole day and i think it's just very unpredictable work at times you on know? top of it i mean the stress and level of responsibility you hold because if you fuck it up right if you if you mess it up you're 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 done and you get sued and it's 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 not it's not pleasant and um i also felt like i i did want to interaction with the patients i did want to feel like I'm building a long-term relationship and, um, you know, like one of like talking to patients is one of the highlights of my day. Good. And so during your residency, so that covered a lot, by the way, thank you. You didn't just start in neurology from previous conversations I've had with you. So didn't you have to do like a rotational type thing? Right. So last year was a lot of rotations last year. I think I did a total of like two months of cardiology i did probably two months of icu um several months of like livers so hepatology and gastroenterology and then a lot of the rest was just like 
general general medicine, which at Jefferson in Philadelphia, it ends up being a lot of IV drug users who get infections and um, who then come in with these like, you know, rip roaring abscesses that you have to treat for many weeks, but then they don't want to because they want to go back to the street and use drugs. And it's this very complicated relationship where they don't listen to you and you feel like, yeah, I, I was getting really burnt out last year. That's the truth is, is I just felt like I was trying hard to connect to these people and try to get them to listen. And it was ultimately, I was left feeling like we're almost using senseless resources on these people who don't want to help themselves. These are addicts. We're talking about addicts, right? Yeah, and yeah. addiction is, you know, this is a very difficult disease to treat. And I understand that they have a disease. And, and ultimately, you know, the, the root of addiction is that they are unable to make the correct decision even and they continuously make the wrong decision despite knowing that what they're making is self-harm and um the completely wrong decision that will lead to bad outcomes but the craving is is just overpowering everything else i mean it's it's crazy when you see these moms who have like a newborn at home or have you know a little kid and they have no idea where the kid is. You know, they, they are like, yeah, I, I started using and it's been two days. I have no idea where the kid is, you know, it's and terrible. that just breaks your heart because because I'm freaking out. Where's the kid? Yeah. Yeah, it is terrible. And uh, I just want to come back to what you were saying. Addiction is a disease, but it's also to me personally. Now, my full disclosure, my 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 dad my biological father died of a heroin overdose in 2012 uh he was never really a part of my life i think it's people suffer from trauma right so when you have trauma and bad things happen to you the reason you become an addict is because you're suppressing the trauma over and over and over again and then you become addicted yeah um when i was doing my i and that's what did a psychiatry rotation and like an inpatient it was like a dual treatment program which i think means that they have a psychiatric disorder on top of a substance use disorder and the trauma that people experience i mean you never like i never imagined people go through this whether it's you know my parents left me in like downtown boston at three in the morning when i was six and i never saw them again whether it's you know my whole family raped me or it's just horrendous stuff that like makes you just like want to like forget what they just told you and then you know they use to forget when they you know become like of of an age like say in their teenage years they start using to forget and then they start associating with other people who use and then the substance use in and of itself leads to reliving of the trauma because you end up being on the street you end up you know a lot of women end up you know looking for money yeah, yeah. yeah prostitution um and then you end up in these like reliving the trauma that brought you here to the first place and it's like almost impossible to break the cycle and you know my heart breaks for that but i just think that there is right now what we're doing is probably not the right move of just okay we'll treat you for you know, you'll come into the hospital every two weeks with a new infection and we'll treat you completely with antibiotics and you're the bacteria that's living there is just getting more and more resistant and you're putting the community at danger now and we're all paying for this and 
it's you know when you think about it like that it's it's kind of tough to justify but i don't i don't really have a better solution yeah i mean unless you're able to erase their trauma and unless they really want help they're not going to stop they yeah. they don't have, they have to have a strong they have to want to they have to sit there and tell you they're I'm going to stop. You're helping me. I'm sober. I'm going to quit, blah, 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 blah. But unless they truly want to, it's just going to keep happening, unfortunately. And your job is just to save them. Even if they truly want to, I mean, I think they might want to for a day or two or three. And then the craving sometimes like just overwhelms them despite their best intentions. Well, then they have to face reality and life is hard. Life Life is is fucking hard. Um, Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's brutal. I mean, people go through horrible shit, really horrible shit. But back to um, back to the neurology and the headaches. I just wanted to ask. We were talking offline. So my wife gets Botox in her head because they say it treats headaches, and she says it does help. Mm-hmm. I was skeptical at first. I'm like, you just want to fucking get Botox, you know? You just want to get Botox, and I get it. I get it. I'm 36. She's 35, and she looks great, by the way. Shout out to my wife, Brittany. <laughs> looks phenomenal. Um, how does Botox help with headaches? So they think that the Botox toxin, um, reduces the inflammation of, you know, the meninges, as I said before. Um, and a lot of the times there are these pain generators around the head, oftentimes in the back of our head, or sometimes it's like behind the eye or by the ear. And those can also become like pain generators. And then that like electrical activity spreads throughout the brain and, and we get migraines. But they actually do have studies that are, you know, pretty convincing with the Botox injections. The, you know, the big downside is one, it's expensive. So you got to have your insurance pay for it. Um, it they, will pay for this. Though. Yeah, they do cover it. Unlike, you know, for, for cosmetic purposes. Yeah. Um, but it takes about nine months for it to start kicking in. But then once they start kicking in, if you get them repeatedly, like people get pretty good relief with them. Hmm. And, you know, on top of that, you get a few less wrinkles. Yeah. And and just to go into that. So with the Botox, it doesn't actually stretch your skin out, right? It just prevents, is it the muscle from moving so the wrinkles don't get more depth? Um, yes, something like that. It does, it does, it does not stretch your skin out. It is... Um, it basically immobilizes some of your cells so they're not like shrinking. And, and so they're not constantly, every time like I move my forehead, right? I wouldn't right. move my forehead. So every time it's making the crease a little deeper, a little yeah. bit deeper, a little bit deeper. See, I think wrinkles look good on men. Like I think it's like it adds maturity and, and wisdom. Thank you. It's part of life. It's part of life, right? But you know, like people like um, like the Kim Kardashian, the, I read that she doesn't smile because she doesn't want the crow's feet and things like that. I mean, I also can't imagine that she's like a very jolly person in general. <laughs> Who knows? But, but um, yeah, actually, I, I didn't hear about that. But I think, you know, like human faces were made to move, right? Like yeah. facial expression is very important. It's how we communicate. Um, I think, you know, I understand that if you take away the wrinkles, say, by the eyes or by the forehead, you, you look younger, you look better. I mean, celebrities look amazing when they do it. Sometimes they, look, they take it too far. Oh, yeah. You know, I was, oh, watching, I was watching the... I used to be a big fan of Shark Tank. Oh, yeah, I love Shark Tank. And some of the new seasons. I mean, you see those guys. I'm like, they... Yeah, like Robert. Oh, my God, man. Come <laughs> on. You take it, take it a step back. 
but you could tell you could, and it's crazy because sometimes you can tell something is a little off. You did something, but you might not be able to pinpoint it. Right. Exactly. It's like it looks a little weird. But then like Jennifer Aniston, you know, she's kept it up in this like incredible way. Yeah. So I think I think you need professionals to tell other professionals how much to do and how much not to do. And it's it's like I don't know, I mean there's a whole science behind it. I personally am of the opinion that, you know, we should um in a way like embrace the the defects that come with facial expression just means that we're using our faces right. I like that. I like that. I agree with you. I agree with because I use a lot of expressions. I mean, it's how it's an what's eighty percent of uh, communication is nonverbal, right? Right. Okay. Um, are you familiar with Elon Musk Neuralink? Very peripherally. Very peripherally. From what I understand, it's supposed to give you know either stroked limbs uh movement or just supposed to enhance movement that otherwise is not there is that yeah so from my research i know that it's it's supposed to have the nerves that are not talking to each other talk to each other so then they can be mobile again right um i don't know a ton about this but there is a project at jefferson i think it's called the neurosleeve and what this um are you saying neurosleeve like yeah sleeve like on your arm and i think what they were doing is Basically, the idea is that you might have a stroke in an area of the brain that controls the movement of your arms. Um, and that area might be dead, and that's why you can't move your arm. But the whole pathway might still be alive, or vice versa. Maybe a part of the pathway leading to the signal going to your arm is dead, but you know the cortical area, the area in your brain that generates the movement is still alive. So basically, like, the idea is that there's still a lot of healthy functioning brain that could potentially lead to movement if you bypass the circuit. So what these people did is they, you know, was this this one professor, Professor Saruya, um, he's, I think he's, he works at Jefferson and at Penn, super, super smart guy. And he partnered with um, these neurosurgeons and they were able to... Um, you know, do neurosurgery to essentially reconnect with wires, reconnect um, pathways around uh, damaged parts, and then put this whole whole sleeve. It's like it's a pretty heavy sleeve that you put on your arm, and then in time, people were getting movement back in their arms. I mean, there's a lot of drawbacks to this. It's Are very... you saying like an, like an exoskeleton? Kinda, but is the machine working and then it eventually builds the muscles start working again right so okay. exactly so so the signal you send the signal and the machine is kind of working for you but your arm is moving i mean they were able to kind of use their fingers oh, shit. um it was this there are a lot of issues with it still it's very heavy i mean it requires surgery which i think is the biggest drawback but i think i don't know if i if i had a stroke and i could not use my arm or my leg I would probably try to do everything I can. Do I go full cyborg, bro? Yeah, full cyborg. Right. Put it in me. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I know maybe it's a similar project. You no, that's not... incredible. That's incredible. I know. I know a, a younger person uh, who is a stroke victim, like under forty, and you know it's terrible. And and hopefully they're able to uh, give him back uh, his mobility. You know, in his life. I mean, he's only in right. his forties. 
It's, it's, it's tough. I don't know how Elon Musk does it. It seems like every week he's got a new project, <laughs> but like his existing projects are still prospering. I know. Meanwhile, he's passing out everything he everything under the sun on Twitter. Sorry, X. <laughs> and then how does he do it? Like, does he sleep? Does he? I think he just hires really smart people. I think he hires really smart people. He's got a strong team around him. And I mean, I love, I'm a big fan of Elon Musk, full disclosure. I love Elon Musk. I know there's a lot of controversy around him for some reason, a lot of things, uh, what he does. And yeah, he does like to, um, I don't know. He likes to say crazy shit on Twitter to get a reaction, we'll say. Right. Uh, but everything he's doing is moving humanity forward. I mean, the Tesla truck, truck, it's it's weird looking, right? It's boxy, and all, but I think it's cool. It's bulletproof. I would drive it. I would 100% drive it. I mean, if I was a multimillionaire, I wouldn't go in debt to buy one. Right. But if I had the money, fuck yeah, I'd have one. I mean, I think overall, like he, every time he makes a breakthrough like that, somebody else goes and says, okay, maybe I can do this in a less expensive way. And he's actually opening the door for people to get on board and maybe get like, get this back to the masses, get, get this to the masses to begin with, you know? But oh, I wouldn't be surprised if Honda and Toyota are working on their box vehicles right now. <laughs> Why wouldn't they be? Why wouldn't they be? It yeah. was like he started with the electric car. Now all the cars have to be electric. You know, every single Ford, Chevy, they're all making their own versions of it. Right. Everybody was hating on it 10 years ago. Right. Well, now because they made promises that they're going to eliminate gases and everything. And We'll see how it goes. We'll see. The, the, my concern with that, and I do think we sh humans are doing damage to the, to the earth. I mean, it's obvious. Um, but we'd have to have every country on board. Because if it's just the U.S. Right. stopping, the other countries are doing a lot more. Like, how... I mean, China is a huge, oh yeah, the biggest polluter in, in, in oh, the yeah. globe, and they're not really on board with cutting back. So, you know, we can we can do all we want, but it's not gonna. I'm I'm fascinated. So, in regards to Elon Musk projects, he's got SpaceX, right? What I'm more fascinated. I mean, I love SpaceX, Hyperloop. The Hyperloop, if he's able to take, so basically what he did was, and he said, you can't do flying cars, but we can build tunnels and we can keep going down and down oh, yeah, and down. The, what do you call it? The Hyper boring, the boring. Yeah, the boring company. And think of it like this. So the people listening who are not familiar with this, if you ever go to the bank and you put your money in the tube and then it shoots up and over to the bank teller, it's like that when you're in the drive through But instead of money in there, it's people. So that's what his goal is. He's saying from going from San Francisco to LA instead of four hours, it'll be 20 minutes. I mean, if he's able to do that, that's a game changer for freight delivery in general, for human um, logistics and all, all sorts of stuff. But we'll see how it goes. Now that he's in Austin, Texas, I heard he's also moving the, um, the not Twitter, the X to Austin, Texas out of uh, Silicon Valley. I mean, he's, I wonder how much time he spends at home. You think he spends any time at home? Apparently he lives in a house as big as this room. Did you ever see that? No. Yeah, he's uh, allegedly. I mean, he's know. got a lot of property, probably. Yeah, I mean. He lives I, in hotels. That's what he does. He yeah, I mean, he moves or, he's got like 10 genius kids, you know. He's got twins with like a, a space engineer, hot space engineer girl. You know, I swear. He, he's smart in the way that he's doing it. He's like, I'm smart, so I should probably have kids with other smart people. And those kids will have smart kids. You know, it's helping humanity. I yeah. think that's his, his logic behind it. I don't know. <laughs> Does that yeah. kind of make sense? Yeah, natural selection right there. Self-induced natural selection. There you go. Um, 
So I want to uh, switch topics up real quick. Okay. So you are most recently, you're from Boston, mm-hmm. but before you lived in Boston, where are you from? I grew up in Israel. I moved, moved to Boston when I was 14. My whole extended family is there. Some of my dearest friends, people I love most are there. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been tough. Did you speak English before you came to the U.S.? I spoke a little English. Um, I remember I was doing some classes before. And everybody in Israel like learns English, but imagine, you know, a kid who get a little closer. Um, a kid who takes Spanish starting from like you know fourth grade. How good is a Spanish by the time he's done with eighth grade? Probably not. Definitely not fluent. I remember I was listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks before coming here, and I was understanding most things. But, you know, when it comes down to talking, it was it, it was definitely a learning curve. Did they put you in a special uh, like classes, ESL classes when you got here? Yeah. For the first year, I was taking English and history with the other foreigners. And um, I was taking like math and physics with the with the rest. Um, with and, the older kids? <laughs> no, the older kids, just just the American kids. OK. Um, and then sophomore year, a lot of my friends that I made freshman year, they went back to their respective countries. And I was like, okay, I'm done with the ESL classes. I'm, I'm going to go and try to make friends with Americans. It wasn't that easy. I mean, it's impressive. You English is your second language. You came here, you studied, and now you're studying in English to become a doctor. I mean, at this point, my English is probably my best language. Is it? Yeah, my Hebrew is, my Hebrew is good, and I, 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 I'm fluent in Russian. Um, but my Hebrew, you know, in terms of like literature and stuff, I'm like stuck at, you know, probably a ninth grade level. I haven't really read the same level of like books that I have since then. And I've done right. med school and college in English. So I think, you know, I would... well, that's why I'm saying it's impressive that you have done it, but I get what you're saying. You're fully immersed in English. Yeah. And, I, and I'm a patriot. I, I am. I am a America loving American. Okay. Good to know. Thank you for disclosing that. Now, do you still talk to your mom in Hebrew? Yeah. And I think we probably do 80% Hebrew, 20% Russian. Okay. She speaks Russian too. Yeah. So my parents moved from Ukraine to Israel in 1990. Um, I guess at the time it was still the Soviet Union and, um, they met in Israel. So growing up, I spoke Russian at home and Hebrew at school. Holy shit, dude. Wow. So how many total languages do you know? Um, I'm fluent in three working on my Spanish. I knew you were working on Spanish. Wow. It's super impressive. What do you think is the best, uh, just sidebar. What do you think is the best language to express your frustrations in? Russian. Really? There's so many cuss words, it's insane. <laughs> I mean, you could you could make a whole language out of Russian cuss words. Really? It's that it's that extent. It's just yeah, it's deep. What's up with the characters? Why do the care like I always know when I'm looking at something, I'm like, oh that's Russian. Um they have some like distinct characters, like a lot of the Cyrillic alphabet looks like American letters. I know, that's why I get confused. I'm like mm-hmm. Because like a P like a P looks like looks the same but it's an r in russian and then there's this like kind of like um bug looking letter with like six legs Uh um and then it's they're just very unique you're talking about the like it's like a circle with little 
it's things just like a horizontal same. line and then there's two there's six legs coming out of it i don't even how many letters are in their alphabet we got uh, 26 i actually, actually don't know how you many. don't know no. okay can you can you write it in a little bit um i can write it'd be slow okay and i would make a lot of mistakes because the way russian is written is um very different from the way that it sounds and okay. i am not like i'm like trained in like grammar like I, I did take ap russian in high school that'd be known but then i basically like knew the answer based on like what it would sound to me not based on like the rules i can't tell you why something is such okay in russian you know in english i can explain like okay this is the grammar rule that like led to this okay but in russian no way all based on hearing back to you growing up in israel you moved from israel when you were 13 or 14 uh, I was 14, yeah. 14. And do you still have family there? I have family, yeah. Any family directly impacted by everything that's going on? I mean, at this point, all of Israel's impacted. Um, I mean, we're getting... Like, every time I talk to them, there's a siren going off, and they're running to the shelters, and, you know, their missiles are getting to every single location in, in Israel. Um, and then... You know, being from being from Israel, being from a small country that's so like, you know, ridden by by war and conflict, it's you really feel like every casualty is like your kin. And I guess the best way I can describe it is like when the Hawaii uh, disaster happened, when like you know hundreds of people died in the in the fires in in, in Maui. I was like holy cow, you know, that, that's horrible. And, and I feel so bad for the, for the, um, you know, for those people. But then I went on with my day, yeah. you know, when, when this happened and my friends can attest, like I was just, I was just crying for, for days. Like I was sent home from work. Um, I just like was like beyond myself. And, and it's, I think coming from such a small country where, where, you know, with the history of the Holocaust and what's what's gone through, you know, the Jewish blood is is um, kind of makes you feel like every soldier that's lost, every patient, every person that's lost is is like my 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 brethren. That makes sense. I mean, it's just such a small community. You grew up there, uh, small territory, and it's constantly been at war. Like, for how long? I mean, since since 48, I mean, 48, the Declaration of Independence in Israel happened. Um, can you explain can you explain to Americans who don't really understand the whole Gaza, like the whole the whole thing or it, the best way you can? Yeah. I'm going to be as objective as I can, just try purely, purely, purely facts. OK, um, so, you know, after after World War Two. Um, the Jewish people kind of decided that a state had to come back, had to, you know, be created for the Jewish people. And the land of, at the time, was known as Palestine, was, you know, believed to be the most suitable because of the history and, and the Jewish roots and the importance for, for Judaism. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of Jews started moving there and buying land from the Brits who were ruling at the time. Um, at the time, you know, the Brits for a while refused to leave and, um, you know, the, the, the Zionists or the Jews really, you know, they terrorized them. They like blew up hotels, blew up bridges, 
they they really drove them out of there and eventually in 47 the un decided to the, the arabs were already there to split the land to israel and palestine um and it was approximately half and half with jerusalem being split under kind of like international control um this uh, who was doing the splitting so the United Nations kind of decided okay. to how they're going to split it because both parties were going to say no, this is more mine, this is more mine. Well, yeah, both. So both, needed a third party. Right, right. Okay. The Palestinians were there, and they were kind of like a lot of them were either Egyptian in origin or Jordanian, and they kind of didn't feel like they belonged to either. And um, the Jews were there trying to you know make a place for themselves, and and the, the most logical thing was to split it into two. The Palestinians, you know, rejected that agreement and did not think that the Jews belonged there to begin with. And the day after the question of Israel, there was, you know, what's known as the independence war in Israel, where Israel was attacked by all its neighbors, including, you know, Syria and Lebanon in the north, Egypt in the, in the south, and then Jordan and, and also the Palestinian Authority there. I guess it was the Palestinian Authority then, but the Palestinians. And Israel, you know, kind of like fought to survive, lost some territory, but has kind of the Jews survived this war. Um, then, you know, during in, in 67, um, during the Six Day War, um, Israel was Israel fought against um, Egypt, Jordan, Syria and Lebanon again. And, you know, it's called the Six Day War because Israel won the war in six days and conquered just an insane amount of territory. I mean, Israel probably grew in size time and time over just based on, you know, conquering so much land from, from Egypt and then from the, the, the Syrian Golan Heights in the north and then um, just really grew in territory. And, and that was probably one of the most um probably one of the most famous victories in in modern warfare and in how swift it was and how how dramatic and then 73 another war the yom kippur war happened and um during which israel you know was attacked yom kippur which is the, the holiest day of the year for for jews where you know nobody's allowed to use any kind of electricity like nobody's connected to the news uh, very few people are in the military bases, um, just like, you know, even secular people, nobody drives, nobody does anything. So Israel was attacked again by all those countries that I mentioned, plus, um, plus I'm pretty sure Iraq was, was firing from, from afar. And once again, Israel, you know, lost a lot of soldiers, but was able to, to capture a lot of land, ultimately ending up controlling all of the Sinai Peninsula from, from Egypt, which is, I think three or four times the size of Israel. Um, at the at the same time, Israel ended up conquering Gaza during that war, um, and and also you know the West Bank during the Six Day War. So at the end of these wars, Israel is ruling over. You know that's when you start can start calling this occupation, but Israel at this point controls Gaza and the West Bank which hosts, you know, I think at that point, one million Palestinians. And that leads to a very problematic situation where Israel is kind of ruling over these people, but doesn't really want to. Um, and, and, and those people, do those people 
have a tour? Are they allowed to go anywhere else, or are they kind of so, forced to stay? How so those work? people are, you know, from Gaza. Like you can get a work permit right right now. Well, right now, like for example, the way the situation is before October seventh, right? There's mm-hmm. two million people in Gaza. They have to request permit to get into Israel, and then they would have to be they would have to get a permit to fly out of Israel if they wanted to. Um, so it's not like they can have open, tr- like, you know, open access to going abroad and stuff. Um, you know, I, d- I wouldn't say that it's like necessarily what you call an open air prison because they are considering themselves independent. Israel is considering themselves them independent. Israel doesn't really want them in Israel. They don't want us there. Um, so there is a very strict border and they're kind of doing their own thing. Israel, but mostly controls what goes in, in terms of, in, in, in the form of, um, firearms and, and weapons. But clearly, you know, we don't do a great job of it because there's so many tunnels connected with Egypt mm-hmm. and where so many weapons are getting, sm- uh, you know, smuggled in and that whole territory is ruled by Hamas and, and. You know, it's it's a it's basically a horrible situation where you don't want to rule these people. I mean, these people hate you with all their hearts, so you can't rule them. It's a problematic situation to give them complete, um, you know, lack of oversight because how do you prevent um, just rampant militarization where you can't stop them? Like what's happening in the north of Hezbollah, like. Israel has no control over what's happening there and the amount of missiles they have is, is, is really scary. Um, and these people are, are, you know, they're promising that they will, you know, go and kill as many of you as they can. In the West that, Bank... That's their goal, right? That's their goal, right? And then, and then in the West Bank, it's, it's very similar too. They're not... Hamas is not as strong there, but it's people who want nothing to do with you. They want all your land. They want all your people dead. And there's... You know, it's it's very easy to say that you know a diplomatic solution needs to be had, but how do you achieve it? So the 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 claim is that once we give them sixty-seven borders, which is the borders before the the six-day war, so before Israel conquered all that land in nineteen sixty-seven. Yeah. So sixty-seven borders. If we give them those borders, then like there will be peace. I mean, to all people who say that, like, check the records. Israel has offered. The Palestinians those borders three separate times each time for the exchange of you know a recognition of the the right of the Jewish state to exist as well as um, you know a peace a peace treaty and and every single time that conversation didn't even happen you know they were just struck down without a counter offer um, they have never acknowledged the Jewish state's right to exist and and you know I, I i am not taking away the fact that israel's made a lot of mistakes and has induced a lot of hate on the palestinian side and i think that you know if if you so are, you can see the their point of view 100 oh, yeah. i mean i mean i mean i can't see what leads a man or a person to um drone into a festival and just mass rape and pillage I, I can't, I don't understand that. I see how, you know, if I was born in like Ramallah in the West Bank, if I was born there to a poor Palestinian family, I probably would not have the most, you know, positive attitude towards my Israeli neighbors. Um, I think that like, especially if you're indoctrinated in the sense of like, well, they took this land from us. 
um, it was ours. Jerusalem should be ours. Like they have no place here. You know that that makes it even worse. I think, you know, I I truly believe that the best thing for Israel's security would be a prospering Palestine. I think a prospering, independent Palestinian country is the best thing for Israel's security. Um, and and you know, I think I think ninety percent of Israelis would agree with that statement. Um, the question is, who do you negotiate with? How do you ensure that you know you are not just creating an open invite to groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda to mm-hmm. like openly walk through the doors? And and how do you foster cooperation? I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, like Israel, and Pal- Israelis and Palestinians have been there the same amount of time since forty eight, right? Like since the declaration. And Israel is one of the most prospering countries in the world, both from a military research, uh, whether it's technology, um, any kind of really any kind of perspective you take. Israel is one of the most prospering countries in the world. And it's a tiny country. And meanwhile, you know, every ounce of every every dollar that goes into the Gaza Strip or the West Bank somehow ends up in, in the hands of the terrorists. And I think that. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy because hate just like breeds more hate mm-hmm. and it's very tough to break the cycle. But I think that, you know, this conflict goes a long, long way. But ultimately, I think most Israelis like, you know, when we talk about it in school, it's like we want peace. Yeah. We don't we don't like nobody. I've never heard any teacher of mine or, or any. I never heard any teaching saying that like we just want the Palestinians dead. Actually, like if, if any kid ever said that, he would be reprimanded, right? That's not that's not what like, I think Israelis want. Now you know, th- this 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 is all an aside because I think that what happened on on October seventh is first of all a huge Israeli failure and 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 you know the level of security and and intelligence and how did this happen and this is. Just unfathomable the amount of devastation and atrocities. That, that it's, it's terrible. It's so terrible. I mean, if you watch the footage, I know a lot of people. You might see a glimpse of the footage, but if you really dig deep, it's it's fucking terrible. Right, and all the evidence is coming out now about about the the the, the rape and and the sexual mutilation, and it's it's just horrible. And and these people that are still being captured there and 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 held hostages. These are civilians. These are not military Mike Rappaport personnel. just posted a video about it today. He just posted. He had it had a bunch of grown men in their underwear, all like this, you know, with their uh, fingers interlocked behind their hand or behind their head. Their fingers interlocked behind their head, and they're on their knees, and they're all looking down on the ground like that. And they all have them lined up, and there's people walking, you know, by with rifles. It's just, it just looks terrible. It looks terrible. Right. Uh, it's, it just, it just. Uh, I mean, these people. Even if they come back, like you're never going to be the same. And, and that's what and that's what I was uh, thinking. I just want to pause you real quick. Um, I think it's terrible. Any civilians are getting killed on both sides. I think that's it's terrible, right? right. Um, obviously, we all want peace, but in my mind, it's like, how can there really ever be peace? How can there really ever be a treaty? Because it, to me, it kind of reminds me of all right. So you know, United States, we dropped. Uh, Hiroshima on mm-hmm. Japan, right? All right. And think about all the terrible things that happened after that. I mean, kids were born with defects, you know, all crazy right. years and years and years later. Do you think Japan really forgave us? Supposedly, maybe. I don't know. 
I don't know. It's it could be a long-term game is what I'm saying. So it could be a – even if they – there's you're not going to change the minds of every single person in Palestine and every single person in Israel, right? Right. And so – and if you – if your brother was uh, killed and your sister was raped and your mom and your dad was beheaded and all this stuff, you think you're going to grow up and be like, okay, there's a treaty now, uh, you know, we're friends. I, I just don't see that happening. Well, I mean, think about the fact that Israel has friendly, very friendly relationship with Germany, you know, and, and, and like these are people who mass slaughtered us That's in, 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 gas chambers not not them specifically their ancestors yeah yeah, yeah. right but it would be the same thing here right if we were to find a solution with a cooperating party in palestine i think it wouldn't be you know a bang and you're done but i think it would be a relationship that could be fostered and you know history books will tell the, the stories of of the conflict but right now i just don't see any any part of their society or anyone in their leadership that is willing to kind of open the door for talks like that and you know i hear a lot of i hear a lot of people talking about well even if israel kills all the like hamas terrorists like hamas is an idea it's an idea for the annihilation there's more kids that are going to grow up it's just like isis right but isis is First of all, ISIS is very much weaker now than it was in a few a few years ago. There's less ISIS. Well, before recruits. that, there was a Taliban. Right. Right. So it's what but, I'm saying is there's there's kids that are going to grow up that are going to be upset. But then there were people, there were kids in Nazi Germany that were growing up to be Nazis, and True. Nazism has, I can't say it's been extinct because now we're seeing the pop up of swastika signs again. Um, and there's still people who I think will, you know, probably have pictures of Hitler in their houses. Idiots. But, right. All right. Um, but at the same time, you know, for the most part, as a, you know, relevant force in our daily lives in the world, I think Nazism is pretty much dead. Now we may be seeing a resurrection of it with all this like heinous anti-Semitism that we're seeing right now. Um, and, and, you know, call, calls for, for um, gassing the Jews and even saying slurs like from the river to the sea, which is a, a, a slur to, for, the, for, the, for the annihilation of the Jewish state, which... I is, saw that the Harvard, the Harvard thing. And yeah, I've seen that. And like you saw the, the I saw the Congress. These, yeah. yeah, that is, it's just disgusting. It's, it's just, insane. I can't believe. And then they, the Congresswoman was going hard asking it's a yes or no question right. it is a yes or no, and they won't do it i mean now imagine imagine the, the group involved was like transgender people or gay people or native americans you know there was no way that they would ever be permitted to allow this kind of speech on campus there's just no way i don't understand how they i guess they justify it and how they're how they're getting away with it i guess it's it's the leaders of the university are kind of letting it slide but if you did the exact same thing to a different group of people saying the same terrible slurs or whatever uh there'd probably be there'd be punishment immediately i i I don't understand i I just it's just so crazy to me and um it's sad and scary and um you know i i seeing all this violence seeing you know houses getting 
uh, spray painted with swastika signs. Here in the U.S. are? Yeah, in the U.S. There were, there were some like, cases uh, in New York. targeting Jews? Yeah, some cases I in New York. There are cases in Europe. I mean, I... Did they go to a... Um, a guy in Philadelphia who has a like a Jewish um, restaurant or yeah, something. Yeah, Goldie. Yeah, there's a guy in Philadelphia, Israeli guy, who has like tons of restaurants. Goldie is like a famous falafel place, and they were protesting outside in a very like violent and threatening way. And he's just trying to serve customers. Right. He's just being a business owner, and they just showed up and start like chanting crazy shit. Right. You know, and it's it's. I don't understand how that's not prosecuted. How he's um, here, he's, he has nothing to do with that, you know. <laughs> and and at the end of the day, I mean, I what is like if somebody can enlighten me, like what, when, when they calling for a ceasefire, like what do you expect to achieve? I mean, these people are actively saying we will do this again, and after we're done with Israel, we will come for America, we will come for Europe, and we're not going to stop until until we're done with the Western world and. You know, you have this country that is like trying as hard as it can to protect its citizens, to get the hostages that it lost back, and at the same time to protect the Palestinians because Israel could just completely wipe off Gaza from the air, killing all the Hamasniks, you know? But then instead it chooses to send foot soldiers into the, these hospitals, where, which they know are military bases. They, they, she chooses to to make sure that we are creating corridors for these people to move out of these areas that we're going to bomb. They're trying to save the most amount of civilians as they can, is what you're saying. Right. And there's no, there is not a single example of modern warfare where a sovereign country was fighting against a terrorist organization that has embedded itself within a civilian population and has done it with fewer casualties. There isn't a single one. If you look at America and what it has done in Iraq and in Afghanistan, way higher ratio of casualties. I mean, in 2013, Barack Obama ordered the, you know, the flattening of a hospital, which they found out was serving as a military base in Iraq. And nobody made a fuss about it. And Israel doesn't even do that. You well, the know? media will suppress it here. They're not gonna, they're not gonna play that. I just think I just think that like we are fed such a mix of propaganda that I'm I'm confused about it very often. When the U.S. does it, it's uh, it's treated differently for sure. It's definitely treated differently. Um, and Israel has to play by different rules because it's a small country. It doesn't have a lot of oil. We we are very it's small. Yeah, we're we're dependent on trade. We're dependent on financial aid. We're dependent on a lot of things. So. We essentially have to play by by certain rules, but I, I truly do think that Israel goes as hard as it can trying to defend Palestinian lives, and and n nobody here wants to see Palestinians killed, right? And 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 that is not that's not our, our goal to to kill innocent Palestinians, and and you know I, I I do feel terrible for every for every Palestinian kid that gets caught in the in the crossfire. That is not the goal. It's so just, your ideal, just just to set the record straight, uh, Dean, you want the least amount of casualties, and you want to see a peace treaty. I want the least amount of casualties. I want. I need to. Hamas needs to go away. Mm -hmm. The kid, the hostages need to to come back. And I think at least for the time being, the Gaza Strip has to be demilitarized until there is a ruling power that can prove that it can, you know, work through diplomacy and and. 
stop demanding for the annihilation of the Jewish people. Seems like a reasonable request. You think? Yeah. As an outsider, as an American, uh, just watching, I think it's terrible. War, you know, rape, cutting people's heads off, you know, all the crazy stuff. It, it's terrible. It's terrible. And um, I hope they can resolve this with the, also the least amount of casualties. But uh, we'll move on because it's a very uh, it's a touchy subject right yeah, now. Yeah, it's a very loaded subject. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you for uh, commenting on it, though, especially being from Israel, coming over here when you're 14 and becoming successful. Thank you for sharing your view. I appreciate you asking. Um, on to the on to some other things. Um, so Dean Dean is no ordinary doctor. I mean, he's not. He doesn't look like a nerd uh, to me, right? He's a Jack. Doc. He's a young Andrew Huberman. For people <laughs> who know that who that is, uh, you also have a, a sports podcast, right? Yeah, I have a tennis podcast. I grew up playing tennis. I was supposed to play college, didn't end up playing college, but tennis is a huge part of my life. Do you still play? I still play a good amount, yeah. What do you think about pickleball? Oh my God, don't get me started. <laughs> have you ever played? I played once. Um, and I think overall, pickleball could be a good sport for somebody who's never played a racket sport before. You know, if you are a person who's looking to pick up a new sport, Tennis is going to be very tough if you're an adult. You know, it's a very steep learning curve. It's very expensive. Court time is very expensive. And, um, you know, it's, it's also just tough for, like, two beginners to, like, stick with it. Pickleball, you can, it could be your first time playing, and you can have such a blast because you just kind of, like, it's... Retirees do it all the time. Yeah, exactly. Because the people who are retired dominate pickleball. Exactly, exactly. And, like, honestly, like, if my mom, for example, wanted to pick up a new sport, I wouldn't say tennis. I would say pickleball. That being said, I think that, um, you know, it's it, it's terrible when you see full-on tennis complexes being taken over by pickleballers. And well, it's easier, right? I know, but, like, I think, fine, if you want to build some new courts for them, that's fine. But... Oh, you're saying they're, they're, they're taking over, like, hey, you're not allowed to play tennis here, we're playing pickleball? Yeah, I mean, like, I, I play, I, I'm a member at uh, University of Pennsylvania at mm -hmm. their tennis club. And, you know, in the summer, I play outside and in the evenings, the courts are just booked solid with pickleballers and it's, it's pissing me off. Are they like chalking and making their own? No, but they're just like lowering the net and they, they make that like horrendous noise that like grinds my gears <laughs> and the ball flies everywhere. And it's just like, I, I'm, I'm immediately irritated. So have you been, did you play tennis since you were a little kid? Yeah, I played since I was like five. Oh, wow. So you like took real lessons, you trained and all this stuff. If you were considering playing for college, I mean, uh, you must, you must be, you know, decent. I would say I'm like, I'm like, my level right now would be a good D3 player, weak D1 player. Very impressive. I mean, I'm happy if I can keep a volley going for like <laughs> 10, 15 hits. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, I love I love tennis. I coached for 10 years. Oh, shit. Who did you coach? Um, I coached in Boston in this club called Longwood Cricket Club. Okay. Um, I actually have, you know, some students who, who went D1. Wow. Um, and, you know, it was a huge, huge passion of mine. And I loved it. And I followed... Uh, the tennis circuit like the pro tennis tour very closely and my best friend and i we have a podcast it's called down a break you can catch us on spotify or apple music shout out to down a break what's your uh podcast bro's name uh, his name is daniel maffa 
Daniel Maffa. Shout out to Daniel Maffa and the tennis. Now, is, I'm assuming he plays tennis as well. Yeah, him and I grew up playing tennis together. We're is like, he from Boston? He's from Boston. He's recovered from a torn ACL. Shout out to that ACL. <laughs> uh, so, is your podcast just about uh, tennis? It's, you know, we, we do follow the tennis tour. It's, it is about tennis, but we do, you know, we do shoot the shit quite a bit. I love that you, I love that you still, I mean, going through just doing everything for your residency and becoming a doctor and you're maintaining a, um, and I know you're studying Spanish as well. You work out. I mean, you, you're busy as hell. Um, I'm pretty busy. I'm pretty busy. I think um, I could be sleeping more, but I don't know. It's, it's how I've always been. Good. What, what's a day in the life of, of a resident, a 27 year old resident? Oh, depends on the like day. What's your, or, or tell me your week, I guess. How, how do they break that up? So it depends on the rotation. So like, for example, this week I'm on the headache unit and I am probably going to work around 60 hours this week. The next week I'm doing all night shifts, which are, you know, like 5 p.m. to 7 a.m. Nice 14 hours. Uh, yeah, 14 hours. You're getting um, paid though, right? I'm getting paid not by the hour. Okay. Um, you on a salary? I am on a salary. Is that how they do all everybody? Yeah, it's based on Medicare actually. Medicare sets the like prices based on cost, like cost of living and okay. and stuff like that. Um, so you know, I, I work a good amount. I think average probably around 65, 70 hours a week. Damn. Some specialties work a lot more. You know, you ask a neurosurgery resident how much they're working. They're not. SMP artists work a lot too. Yeah, SMP artists. Yeah, they get up there. <laughs> Oh, I'm always working as well, but it's more so running my business. I'm not hands on with a patient, you know, the whole fucking time. Yeah, I mean, because a lot of running a business is, is probably more stressful. What is your um your goal after after you're done? I mean, what's that called? Once you're done your residency, is that the white coat or what? This is a white coat before. So I I have a white coat right now. I don't like wearing it. Okay. I just feel like it like. You look too smart. It just puts a distance with me in the, in the in the patient. I never go and I say, hi, I'm Dr. Zellich. I'm always, hi, I'm Dean. Okay. Okay. Um, I like that. I feel like it immediately, like, connects me to the patient more. And mm -hmm. I, ultimately, what I want is trust. Mm -hmm. um, but after residency, I'll be a neurologist and I'll probably do a fellowship in headache medicine. And then future i don't know like either are you gonna do that in uh philadelphia so the jefferson program is really strong i would definitely consider it i think ideally i would love to go back to boston at some point and then you know long term maybe like opening my own headache center maybe doing you know working for a big medical center while doing research on the side maybe going to a pharmaceutical and consulting them um a lot of a lot of options but um I don't know. I think I, I am definitely wanting to do research later on. So you are more leaning towards the research aspect than being with uh, patients day in, day out. I don't want to see patients every day now. Okay. <laughs> but I just, but you do want to see some. I do want to see time. some. There's more no so in uh, studies, experiments, research. I think I, if, I think if I could find a recipe that is like seeing patients two or three times a week and uh, and doing research, like whether for a laboratory or for a company two, three times a week, that would be incredible. Because then, you know, then both things kind of give you interest and give you motivation and give you energy as opposed to feeling like you're getting burnt out by just one. Yeah. And you don't get bored. I mean, just, I mean, research is fun, but you research anything long enough. You're like, ah. you know, it can, it's not 
But then sometimes, like, when, like, your your hypothesis is right, it fires you up so much. That would, and if it changes lives, I mean, right. that would be incredible. That would be incredible. Um, what advice do you have to young people who want to be a doctor? And, like, what weren't you prepared for? What did you underestimate about the whole process? Well, um, I think... So when I went to college, I did engineering. Um, so your like, your bachelor's in engineering? Yeah, biomedical. And I was always like a math physics guy, and I really did not know how to study for like physiology and heavy reading and memorization classes. So that was really hard for me. Um, I think making like I ended up getting a tutor, and I nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that. And I think that like what. I am taken from this is this hasn't been smooth you know there have been several times like I was I was in an early assurance program at Boston University going straight from college to the med school I was put on probation for for you know my grades in physiology um, I was able to pull through I had a really hard time studying for standardized exams um in in med school i had some really tough rotations where i felt like i was getting you know abused by the residents and and stuff like that and you know there's there's going to be times when when you're down and i think that like this process is so competitive and it feels like if you stumble you're you're automatically out of the race and i just want to let you know it's not true if if your dream is to be a doctor and if your dream is to practice medicine then then you can achieve it and i have some of this you know most successful doctors residents um you know my my fellow med students um have been people who it didn't go smoothly for them either like they they had to maybe do a master's to even get into med school and like my good friend, I have a good friend who's an um, otolaryngology resident at Jefferson. He he didn't have the grades to get into med school after college, and he had to do a master's, and he ended up finishing first in our class in med school. Wow. Um, so I just feel like you know it's important to know that. So if there is a setback, you can you can still keep going. You can still keep going. You know. Um, that being said, you got to make sure you want it because it is. It is a long road and it beats you down and so many times it feels like, did I choose right? Um, so so make sure you want to and and just know that, you know, even if you have a bunch of like bad interactions, like those few good interactions where you can really help people and they're grateful, like that, that gives you a lot of energy for the future. Good shit. And just to clarify, so in order to get to where you want to be, you did four years bachelor's. Right, yeah. and then four years med school, and then four years res. So t- total of twelve years of training. Total of twelve years training. Yeah, it's intense. That's intense. And then it's so competitive. Like it's so competitive to get into med school. Like I don't know if I would get in with my grades now. Uh, it gets more competitive by bat- the yeah. What you already completed. Yeah, I mean, it's just it just gets more competitive by the by the by the day. People you know? are getting smarter now. We got ChatGPT, man. <laughs> but then they want more publications, and they want this kind of research and this type of volunteering and it almost like they want you to be like either a perfect human or a robot right because like you need going to towards a robot man yeah you need to like have a million hours of volunteering research publications perfect grades uh but they also want you to have extracurriculars like they want to see that you're you know 
playing sports and and or playing music or something like that so it's sometimes it feels like you're not doing enough right you're not trying hard enough this is another example this is actually another tip one of the things i got asked most about in my residency interviews is oh so you play tennis so you um have a tennis podcast and i think that like having that aspect of things is really important because ultimately they're looking for somebody that they're going to enjoy working with and nobody wants to work with a robot, right? So so don't give up on your passions and don't give up on your hobbies. And it is just as important as, you know, the extra volunteering or, you know, outreach that, that you could do. I think it's uh, a big factor in your mental health too, right? A hundred percent, hundred percent. Dean, thank you for coming on. Um, I really appreciate it. I wish you the best of luck. Hopefully I'll have you on in the future when you're doing when you're dominating and you're successful neurologist, just killing it. I appreciate you having me. It's been a pleasure. Dean, where can people find your podcast? What's the name of it? What's your, I mean, if you want to give your YouTube or Instagram, all that information. Um, yeah, definitely. So you can find my podcast at uh, down a break pod. We are both on um, Instagram and Twitter. Sorry, X. <laughs> um on spotify it's just down a break it's it's gonna be you know it's gonna say podcast by dean zeldich and daniel mafa um and um yeah please subscribe please check us out and uh send us fan mail and any any kids out there thinking about becoming a doctor send dean dms ask him questions he'll respond when he gets a chance please uh you can dm me at dean zeldich is my instagram feel free to to hit me up if you need advice Thank you. <laughs>